1: Born in North Carolina, based in Bellingham, Washington. Broadcast on WHUP-LP, this is Dirty White Belt Radio.
0: It's not methodical, it's not slow, it's brute force sometimes, and aggression. Like It's not a hammer to a nail, judo's more the sledgehammer to the nail, and if the table breaks, so be it.
1: This is Dirty White Belt Radio, stories about jiu-jitsu life and culture. I have never been so motivated to train as I was after talking to Travis Stevens, the man whose voice you just heard. The American Olympic Judo silver medalist and black belt in jiu-jitsu under Henzo Gracie is driven. To hear him talk about goal-setting, work ethic, and determination, and then to listen to him recount matches that are years in the past with an emotional resonance that suggests they happened yesterday, well, that's the kind of thing that should make you want to get out of bed at 5 a.m. and do workouts like the five-a-days he describes. Listeners submitted dozens of questions for Travis, and he answered them all in the way that you'd expect him to, directly, thoughtfully, and thoroughly. And sometimes we got some surprising answers. Travis tells all how you should approach learning and practicing takedowns, what it takes to keep up his famous training volume, and his approach to avoiding injuries while clocking so many hours on the mat. He'll tell you what he really thinks about self-defense. He'll give you advice for judo teachers who have jiu-jitsu students and he'll tell you how the training at Henzo Gracie Academy in New York compares to international judo training. Be sure to stay tuned to the end for the brutal story of his 2012 Olympic semifinal, where the judges went against him in a controversial decision against Germany's Ole Bischoff. We spent the week at the IBJJF World Jiu-Jitsu Championships, the Mundials, watching the best in the world. The show you're about to hear is one of them. Next week, we've got legendary jiu-jitsu and MMA fighter Robert Drysdale talking about his latest project, a history documentary called Closed Guard the Movie. We'll have a few bonus shows as well. We can't wait to bring all those podcasts to you, so please subscribe to the show for free on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or Google Play so you don't miss anything. And if you want to get a hold of us to suggest future show topics or ask a question, you can email jeff at dirtywhitebelt.com or get at us on Instagram at Dirty White Belt or on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Cageside Radio. Now let's get to our featured interview with Olympic silver medalist, Travis Stevens. Toro Cup 10 is about to happen on June 23rd. There are going to be dozens of amazing jiu-jitsu matches, and we have something exciting and new this year. Remington Place Productions is producing video promos for 10 of the most exciting matches, voiced by yours truly. So if you want to hear a preview about exciting matches like Gannon Lang against Evan Arredondo or Josh Murdoch against new black belt DeAndre Corby, and congratulations, DeAndre, you can go to the Facebook page for Toro BJJ, facebook.com/torobjj, or check out torocup.com for a full list of the matches. Either way show up at triangle jiu-jitsu slash cadeside mma slash toro bjj world headquarters at 124 lotta road in durham north carolina on june 23rd raise money for a good cause while watching great jiu-jitsu you'll be glad you did so travis thanks a lot for taking the time to be on the podcast today happy to do it so you're legendary in terms of your amount of training volume, how much you train, your work ethic and dedication. One of the questions the listeners had was, how did you balance that with injury prevention and did you do anything, do anything special for recovery? I didn't, um, there wasn't really a balance. You're either
0: training or you're not. There's no middle ground of, well, I can do this kind of training, but I can't do that kind of training. You're either all in or you're all the way out and you're recovering. So for me it was that was the the balance was drawing that hard line in the sand where is my ankle so hurt that I have to go to the hospital? No, then I can work out. I've always followed that philosophy for all my injuries cuz if something on my body is hurt, I I can I'm good enough to protect it and I'm good enough to develop other things around it to evolve my game so that I have some extra tools in my toolbox when it comes to events. I could sprain my ankle in the second round and not be able to use it, but I've been through it
1: and it, it helps me through the tough times. In terms of your training regimen, how do you balance things like how do you how do you divide tachiwaza from nawaza? How do you divide drilling from randori or sparring? Like how do you do you have an optimal mix? It's it's
0: about a 50-50 split between the tachiwaza and the nawaza when we're talking about judo. Mm-hmm. And as far as drilling goes, it's about a 70-30 where we 70% of the time we spend drilling. We we run our system of development much like a D1 wrestling room where the live isn't so important as much as it is knowing how to drill and knowing what to drill and in a systematic order to not waste time. We can, we can get in an hour and a half done more per, for development than most schools get done in two to two and a half hours just because we can schedule the structure and keep moving and that wasted downtime just doesn't exist for us.
1: Is the drilling and sparring mix similar when you're training jiu-jitsu or do you have a similar philosophy for training jiu-jitsu as judo? It's not. It's, it's a little bit different just because
0: until you know enough to be given the reins to develop yourself, it's really up to the coach to make sure he fills each athlete's grappling knowledge into a complete hole. so that yes, there's going to be gaps, but there's not these massive holes that they don't understand. They have to have a fundamental understanding of each type of position. Whether they can play it or not doesn't matter. But they have to know, hey, this means I'm in danger. This means I'm not. This is how I get out, like an idea behind it, even if it's not drilled. Like they have to have a conceptual understanding of everything. And that's the coach's job. So until that happens, it has to lean more towards the drilling than it does the sparring. Otherwise, we're just creating bad
1: habits or we're ignoring certain parts of the game. What are your thoughts on cross-training between Judo athletes and jujitsu jitsu athletes? Obviously, you're someone who's competed at the highest level in both. It's, it's difficult for most people to do because most people can't treat
0: them as individual sports. They, everybody is highly competitive and the idea of using training for development doesn't exist with most athletes even at the highest level we're all super competitive we all like to win we all don't like to lose for me i never minded losing in jiu-jitsu because i understood it wasn't this thing that i was trying to aspire to be the world's greatest at so guy passes my guard i'll just recover guy gets my back i guess i'll get out like it wasn't like an end-all be-all whereas when i do judo It's an end-all be-all. Like I do not get thrown, I do not lose gripping exchanges, I don't stumble, I don't trip. Everything is meant to be and I force the action and I force things to happen in an aggressive manner. Jiu-Jitsu is very laid back. So what I find a lot of athletes doing with that, with the other mindset of just wanting to win is they use Jiu-Jitsu techniques against Judo players to win to prove they're better. It's like a judo guy who comes into Jiu Jitsu and says, well, there needs to be more stand-up, but why? Why? And it's the Jiu Jitsu guy that says, oh, there should be longer time on the ground, but why? Like, the sports are different for their reasons, and it's not the sport's fault that you're not good enough to compete at the level because you want to do it your way and not the way the sport rules deem you should. You know. A fight between two men is decided solely upon the rules unless there really are no rules. That's the only way to decide who's a better fighter.
1: That's a really interesting perspective, especially because one, one of the questions we got was from our Forged Fitness Judo coach, Sean Madden. And he teaches a mix of Judo. His focus focuses Judo, but he's got a lot of BJJ guys in the class. And so from a teaching perspective, how do you keep Nawaza sharp when you have Jiu-Jitsu guys who are kind of trying to play the game their way to sort of slow down the game on the ground, to try to avoid pins, things like that? You you use the clock.
0: A lot of jiu-jitsu guys can't, and it comes from a drilling mentality. Like like a lot, like One of the drills we used to do is we used to set a clock for a minute, and we used to see how many techniques we could get done in a minute, starting from the feet to hitting the floor to turning to getting the choke or the arm lock or the pin. And, you know, a low low average judo player score would be around like 10 in a minute so he's roughly doing about 3 per second when I was competing for the Olympics when we would do the drill I'd be upwards of 14 and 16 in a minute like that speed that precision that intensity needs to be there you have to be able to move yourself mistake free through exhaustion through the techniques and both people have to be able to do it Like, your training partner can't be at such a level that doesn't benefit you for the drill. And it really helps the jujitsu guys understand like, you're failing. Like, this isn't like, I know you can do it, you just can't do it right because speed is a part of right when you're doing judo. You have to have it. It's not methodical, it's not slow, it's brute force sometimes, and aggression. Like, it's not a hammer to a nail judo is more the sledgehammer
1: to the nail and if the table breaks, so be it. You mentioned the differences between the rule sets and a a lot of the questions that we got are about takedowns for jiu-jitsu. We're a jiu-jitsu guy asking, what takedowns should I know? How should I approach learning them? Do do you have thoughts on that for jiu-jitsu? I'm not a fan of takedowns in general
0: when it comes to jiu-jitsu just because I don't see the benefit. Like, As somebody who competes at a high level, when we look at certain techniques in certain positions, you have to do like a risk-reward-benefit. For example, when we're talking about judo, we talk about bear hugs and like body lifts and suplex. And it's, it's kind of a 50-50 toss-up, like who lands on top of who in that position and which way does the ref see it. Some guys are very good at it and some guys win world titles and Olympic titles with it. But on the other hand, a lot of people lose a lot of matches because of it. So it just depends on the day and the ref. So we refer to it as 50-50 judo because nobody's really at an advantage. When it comes to looking at jiu-jitsu and the takedown game, it's is it really worth it from a strategy standpoint to fight for a takedown? If your partner is not willing to pull guard and you're not willing to pull guard, yes, takedowns are important. But the focus of saying, I need to know a takedown we're talking about a very small number of people who need to know how to do a takedown when you look at like the highest level of competition. Most takedowns happen because somebody tried to sweep somebody, the guy on top ran away and got the guy on bottom got dragged to his feet and then he quickly does a takedown. But that's like a transitional piece that should be drilled. Not a, we're gonna start on our feet not holding each other. And I don't know if the guy's gonna do a flying triangle, flying arm lock, flying wrist lock. I don't know if he's gonna jump guard. I don't know if he's gonna pull guard. I don't know if he's gonna do a drop sale or a tayo. I don't know if he's gonna do sumi. Like, there's so many just variables in there that you can't, you can't even imagine game planning for it. Like, if I were to teach people how to get into an advantageous position with their grips in a jiu-jitsu match, it would be relatively useless because then the guy just pulls because he knows he's lost and then nothing happens. So it's kinda like, do you really wanna know how to do takedowns, or do you really wanna know how to be aggressive enough on your feet to force the other guy to pull? And I, I teach my students this, the latter of, we're gonna, I'm gonna show you guys how to walk, how to move, how to create pressure, and how to put your hands on the heat to force the other guy to pull so you can play top. Because the two points really isn't worth it. Especially when I can shoot a blast double I can take you down but all of a sudden you roll and I land in deep half you get two points like I don't and the, the rule set and the mindset for this culture just doesn't want that
1: or they change the rules and let's talk about that because you mentioned earlier you know all fights between grown ass folk are dependent on rule set unless there's no rules do you have opinions about the benefits and drawbacks of the current judo rule set or the jiu-jitsu rule set? Or, or are you an it-is-what-it-is-adapt-to-the-rule-set sort of person? It's, you know, as an athlete, it is my job to cheat.
0: Like, that, it is what it is. Like, I cheated throughout my entire judo career, and at the end of the day, the refs allow cheating. It's, it's no different than than driving a car like we've all changed lanes in the middle of an intersection we've all changed lanes on a bridge the cops don't pull us over we all drive five miles over to speed limit we know we're not supposed to and so there's always like a this no matter what the rules are it's like the community without saying anything reads them and goes but we're gonna allow these things to happen and if you don't understand that you've already lost so no matter what rules you put in place the refs and the athletes without speaking to each other are gonna agree upon, we are gonna allow this to cheat. And just like jiu-jitsu, you can't grab inside the gi, but I'm here at The World and I've watched every one of them put their thumb inside the gi on the pants and the sleeves. I, I watch the refs look at it. Nobody's gonna change it because it's one of those accepted rules that we allow to be broken. So I, like changing the rules doesn't help because the people who want to pull guard are going to find a way to do it and the people who are going to run out of bounds on a takedown attempt to not get taken down are going to do it. It's just, you can't force two people to fight the way you want once you put them on the mat. No different than you can't force two people to walk into a UFC octagon and have a bloody war. Like, as much as you want it to happen, it's just they won't do it and you can't make them. So I don't, I don't think the rules are the change. It's just the mentality of the fighters, and that's how they train to win.
1: Quick story from an old U.S. grappling tournament. U.S. grappling has always had the best tournaments around for both kids and adults, but Jason Bumpkin Wingate from Gracie Raleigh, a brown belt with tons of experience, was tasked with the kids' matches one day. Now, they always put their most experienced and best referees on the kids' matches because that's the future of the sport, the consequences are a little higher, and they just want people to be able to pay closer attention. Now, often, referees are underappreciated. It's a really tough job and it's thankless. Nobody notices when you do it perfectly. Everybody notices when you screw it up. But Jason did such a great job that day that U.S. Grappling got letters from multiple parents about how attentive he was, about how he was right on top of the action, and about how clearly he cared about the kid's experience. That's the type of experience that I've come to expect from years of competing at U.S. Grappling. You can register online right now for U.S. Grappling Columbia, South Carolina on June 30th and U.S. Grappling Charlotte July 14th. It's going to be a lot of fun. Save you some money by registering early at usgrappling.com. So in terms of self-defense, you know, we're talking about it from a competition athlete perspective. A lot of folks listening have a self-defense perspective. Do you have thoughts on competition's relationship to self-defense and whether judo or jiu-jitsu is superior to the other for self-defense? It's funny because when you start talking about
0: needing self-defense and needing these things, what we're really talking about is... How do I allow another person's ego to grow so big that in a situation he's willing to want to fight another person to prove how big his ego is or her ego is in a situation? Like I can't imagine ever being in a situation really where you have to defend yourself. Like People put themselves in situations where they know they're going to get into altercations because they want to not because it randomly happened and the ones where they randomly happen there's no amount of training that you could actually have to help you in that situation with the given time frame that you have if you're 20 years old and you're trying to learn self defense like you miss the boat unless you're willing to dedicate eight hours over the next four years of your life and you understand that over the next four years of your life You're not going to be able to apply any self-defense tactics in a real-life scenario for the exact reason why any of these purple belts couldn't defend themselves in a street scenario, because the guy that does kickboxing and he's drinking, he's going to kick your head off, and there's nothing you're going to do about it. And then his buddy's going to hit you over the head with a glass bottle, and it is what it is. There's just so many military personnel, there's just so many police officers that... The level of training you would need to have a level of self-defense is ridiculous. To to actually be able to implement it. And then you'd have to find places to teach you correctly. Like at the same time, would you really want to throw a guy to a floor? Or do you need to understand how to manage a crowd to make sure that all threats are in front of you and the one behind you doesn't cold cock you? Mm-hmm. It, like There's more to self-defense than just this one-on-one fight where we're going to get into a fight. Because if that's the case, you could have just walked away. So it's it's one of those, like, does it really matter? Because at the end of the day, you should have never been in an altercation. And if you are, you messed up your life a long time ago.
1: You mentioned that a lot of times that, you know, a 20-year-old guy may have missed the boat. Do you have thoughts on when the optimal time to get kids into martial arts is, Judo or Jiu-Jitsu? The sooner the better. The sooner the better. Mm-hmm. Another thing I wanted to ask you about is you, you, you've you trained a lot at Henzo's, you're a Henzo Gracie black belt, and these guys are doing really terrific things on the competition circuit. Do you think there's any anything magic going on there that sets them apart from other people, or is it just hard work, dedication, great instructors?
0: Uh, I mean, with all due respect, they do their job. Like it, it, like to most of these people. Like coming from a, from my background and the backgrounds that I've been involved with. Like I've I've been in rooms with D1 wrestlers. I've seen the Olympic freestyle team train. I've seen the Olympic Greco team rain, train. I've been to Japan and seen the national team train. Like I understand what work ethic is. But and the normal work ethic. Like we're talking about like the people that don't win at the highest level, but the people that are just trying to get to the highest level. When we start talking about jujitsu and what the people at the highest level to do are the exceptional people, their training regimen is like the people, the up and comers trying to get to the highest level in the other sports. Like they're not at a level where the other day somebody was telling me yeah, this person's really special. They wake up at 5.30 and they go they go work out, then they come back and they work out in the afternoon and then they work out at night and they're really going hard and I'm like, that seems like an off-time training schedule to me. It's not. Like, that's what we do when, when we're not training for something. It's just normal. Like, where's your five-a-days, where's your three-a-days, where's your intense camps, where's your training partners? Like, you can't do it alone. And if you're trying to do it alone, you're never going to make it anyway because you need somebody there. And you need a professional coach to watch you and monitor you and push you. Because if it's left up to the athlete or the one person, they're always going to fall short. At the end of the day, like, you need a professional strength coach that's going to know you can put an extra five pounds on the bar safely or you know you're going to put an extra 10 pounds on the bar because you're going to challenge yourself and you're there. When you do fail, to have professional spotters to make sure you don't get hurt. You need professional staff members around you, professional training partners, coaches. You know what? The guys at Henzo's, that's what John does for them. That's what Henzo does for them. They show up every day. They wake up at 5.30. They lift at 11 o'clock at night. They just outwork these people. There's there's no secret. It's like nutrition. If if you as an everyday person don't understand nutrition, like, I can't help you. Don't go buy a book. If you're not doing the bare minimum of eating salads, drinking water, not snacking, not eating at 1 a.m., if you can't do that, like, what are you trying to do nutrition for? Like... Some people go, I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to get really strong and I got this new routine. They've already bought the routine. They've already bought the trainer and they haven't even gone to the gym consistently four times a week at the same time for six months. It's like they're either all in or all out and they don't keep a consistent feel. Those guys train all the time, all day, and that's why they're good. and That's why they're making gains on all these athletes.
1: Cageside.com always has the best deals on fight gear, but let me throw out three sale items that you should be interested in. First, black no-logo fight shorts. These are high-quality wicking shorts that keep you dry while you train and last a long time, I can say from personal experience. They're only $15, so if you want high-quality fight shorts, get to Cageside.com right now. There's also a Cageside MMA logo beanie for only $20. Get you one for the coming winter before it starts to get cold. Finally, Cageside.com has a Cageside MMA large mesh gym bag. I had one of these for years. It was great for the beach. It was great for training because if you have wet gear, like a wet rash guard, then it's going to dry out without getting all stinky and nasty in your, in your gym bag. So check it out. It's only $27 right now for a limited time only. Find all the best deals at cageside.com. Are there any up and comers in US judo or international judo that we should be watching for in the next few years?
0: Uh, that's That's hard to say. Judo is is such a crazy time and we're we're kind of in the midst of a transitional period where the people that were winning two years ago probably won't be winning in the next two years because the people that were good enough to win were taking time off because it wasn't a qualifier now they're going to come back and the tournaments are going to get harder the tournaments are going to get deeper with the seeds you're going to have to win six matches instead of four it's just you never know it's it's so hard to say when somebody at that level it's not necessarily about who skill is better than who it's more about the confidence and how they carry themselves and how they apply that confidence on the mat when they are competing versus you know i'm going to be a little nervous because i think you're going to throw me so i'm going to do this false attack and i'm going to lose on the penalty
1: it's there's such fine margins you just never know I have a couple of questions about some of your matches uh, in, in the Olympics where in the, in the quarterfinals in 2016 against Ivanov, you end up pinning him and you had a particular side control pin where your arm's between his legs. And I was watching with this with a bunch of jiu-jitsu guys who were like, oh, why doesn't the guy on the bottom just reverse triangle him? And I'm wondering, is that, like, are there things that you do to avoid that attack or is that a rule set issue where it's a technique that's not as common in judo? Uh, uh, it.
0: It's funny that they're like, well, why don't they just do that? Like, that's like the guy at the local bar that played high school football watching the Patriots win the Super Bowl thinking they know more and telling them what plays they should have ran. Like, if you have ever trained with me, you know damn well you are not going to reverse triangle me from that position, whether you're a black belt in jiu-jitsu, whether you're a world champion in jiu-jitsu, like it just doesn't happen like i know it's there and when you go to throw it up i'm just going to go to north south and you're still going to be pinned and you're not going to get out like these guys that do judo like you got to understand the rule set and the mentality like he's got 20 seconds to get out you really think he's going to spend 10 seconds of that losing trying to put me in a reverse triangle that i'm probably going to pop my head out of anyways at the end of the day you know how hard that is to hold it's not like he offensively threw it up and locked it. Like, he's doing it in a defensive action. I don't know if I've ever seen anybody do it in a defensive action. It
1: That's just such a small-minded mentality. Another question that we had from a listener was, you, you have a legendary war with Oli Bischoff in the, the, the Olympics in 2012. And I'm curious, like, you know, a lot of people feel like you won that match. But six years and a silver medal later, how does looking back on that match... How do you you look back on it? Do you look at it as a growth process? Are you still, like, how how do you feel about that? How do you feel about, you know, you had a very intense stare down with Oli. Like, what are your memories of that match? It's just heartbreak and disappointment. You can't,
0: you can't imagine, and the jiu-jitsu community can't imagine what it's like to put it all out on the line for that one moment in time, to lose it on a bogus ref's decision. Now, whether they all wanted to vote for him or not, the fact that they all didn't raise their flags at the same time makes it a bogus decision. it It's one of those things where this jiu-jitsu is such a young sport that most of the people winning it right now haven't dedicated their entire lives to fight the entire world with no funding, with no support, through injuries, through the heartache. like It would be like, if I could equate it to something, what we did during London and Rio as far as the United States and the medals, it would be like a bunch of dads getting together to put together a basketball team because their work salaries allow them a little bit of extra cash to play on the side, and then they win the NBA Finals. That's like... We're talking about teams with budgets of $20 million. Athletes getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars. If you're from Russia and you win the Europeans, you get a car. If you win the Worlds, you get a house. Like, time and time again. If if I win the Worlds, I get a bonus of $5,000. That's it, like, and I get a pat on the back and I come home and I train for the Olympic Games. That's all we get, and Nobody knows us, nobody says anything when we come home. It's just it's a day in, day out grind where you're competing against stars, like real stars. Like how about how about you go home, you go into your backyard, and you train by yourself to make an NFL team as a linebacker or a running back. And then you know what? Actually make it and actually win a Super Bowl ring. That's what it's like for a US judo player to win an Olympic medal. Those are like the odds that are stacked against us because we're talking about people that have medical staff, that have professional coaches, that have scouters, that have training partners, that have the facilities to win. It's the, the odds that are so stacked against us. And to make it to that point in time where I'm fighting for an Olympic medal, to lose it like that, it's just you can't. You can't imagine because you're never gonna get it back. It's not like the jiu-jitsu world where you're gonna, oh, let's go next year, oh, let's go next year. You can't win four Olympic gold medals. For the rest of my life, I will never be a two-time Olympic medalist, ever. When I should have been a two-time Olympic finalist, whether I won gold in London or not, I should have been a two-time Olympic finalist. And I will never be able to say that and Saying saying it would be wrong like right or wrong 20 years from now I'm an Olympic silver medalist that's it all because of a split you know decision even amongst the crowd that that I lost and it's not Ole's fault he did his job he fought hard I fought hard and the decision went the other way I clearly didn't want it as much as he did in the ref size
1: not very many people can say that they're Olympic silver medalists though either not many people can say they're two time Olympic finalists either do you? Bureaucracy is never okay do you have judo heroes that you look up to to this day no
0: these are just every, everyday people don't have jiu jitsu heroes don't have judo heroes I have people I trust people I look to for information but heroes no they're just men, they're just women, they're just people like me, like moms, like dads, that just made a choice in life to dedicate ourselves and not be bothered or influenced by the world. Stayed focused, stayed hungry, and did our job, the job we gave
1: ourselves. Would you have any advice for a young, hungry judo player or a, hung- a young, hungry jiu-jitsu person, maybe somebody who just got their blue belt that's like, I want to be an Olympian. I want to, you know, what would you say to that person?
0: There's nothing I could say because they're at such a young age where the idea of, that would be like a high school student saying, I want to be a billionaire. And he lives in a trailer park. Like, I love it. I love that you really want it. But come see me when you put together your own... Like, do the bare minimum on your own and then come see me. That would be my, my cause. Like, you want to be an Olympian? You want to be a BJJ world champion? You're 16 years old. You're at home. Wake up every day before school and go running for 30 minutes. Lift after school. Make sure you're at jiu-jitsu every night. Make sure you get passing grades in school when you do that come talk to me because now i know you're dedicated now i know you can work hard and now i know you can prioritize your time that's the biggest thing these athletes don't do is they don't prioritize their time and if they want to be really successful and they want to make a living at it they have to learn how to prioritize their time okay. I use NFL players as like the best example because people see them in commercials, people see them you know, wearing clothing and ads, and I'm like, you realize he took time out of his day to go do that. Like It doesn't just happen, but people don't look at it that way. When they see them in a commercial, that means that guy got on a plane, he sat on a set for three to four days, getting told what to do, away from his family, not training, not doing his job, not doing the thing that he's known for. To do this one ad or to take this one picture or to be in this one commercial like there are things you have to do when you reach a certain level if you want to be successful if you want to make money at it if you want it to be your profession if you want it to be your hobby you don't have to do those things Prioritizing your time doesn't really matter but if you want to be successful and you want to make a living and you want to be known and you want to be remembered you have to prioritize your time and getting an education, especially through high school while putting together that work ethic shows guys like me and the, and the coaches and the people who have been there, because we did it, that you can do it and you have the, the ability to do it. There are talented people that can't work hard that can never make it. They might win some matches here and then but they're never
1: really gonna make it. They're never gonna reach their potential. Do you have future goals for yourself, either as a teacher or in a competitive context? I do. I do. Everybody should. If you don't,
0: what are you doing today? I have goals for today. What are your goals for today? Oh, that's private. You can't do that. Those
1: are my goals. That's not the goals for the world. Is there anything I haven't asked about that you really wish I would have asked about or anything that you feel like people need to know about you that maybe they don't? I'm, I'm a private person. Like I don't train with people unless
0: they ask. I don't answer questions unless people ask. Like if people want to know something they are more than welcome to ask and if they don't then they don't. I don't I don't feel the need to just preach to people or give people information like I've been involved with too many people that want it that don't want to work out or have excuses as to why they can't work out, but they really want it, Uh, but they have excuses as to why they lost. They have all these things, and it's just, okay, that's your point of view. You are more than welcome to think that way. I don't think that way, but I honestly
1: don't care if you think my way or not. It's just the way it is. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to answer some of our questions today. No problem. Thank you. U.S. Grappling comes back to Richmond on July 28th. Richmond is always one of my favorite places to visit and to compete. Tons of great gyms there, Seth Smith's Upstream BJJ, Richmond BJJ with Eric Burdo and Liz Susson, and, of course, Revolution BJJ featuring such luminaries as Andrew Smith, Daniel Charles Frank, Trey Martin, Jarrett Church, many, many others. All of those folks are likely to be on the scene July 28th when U.S. Grappling returns to Richmond. Plus, all your friends from the DMV usually come down, as well as everybody from the Triangle, from Wilmington, really tough grapplers from North it's a great spot to train with and compete against people that you don't always get the chance. So come out and have the best tournament experience around at usgrappling.com, register early to save some money, and to make the tournament run smoother. Hopefully, we'll see you there. My thanks to Travis Stevens for such a thought-provoking and eye-opening interview. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the show for free on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or however you get podcasts. That way you won't miss interviews like this one, and you can access our archive, including interviews with world champions like Gordon Ryan, Dominico Oblinite, and Michelle Nicolini, with great advice from people like BJJ mental coach Gustavo Dantas about how to improve your competition mindset. Next week, Jiu-Jitsu legend Robert Drysdale talks about trying something new, a project with lasting value for the jujitsu community. You can email us at jeff at dirtywhitebelt.com or get at us on Instagram at Dirty White Belt. You can also engage with us on our Facebook page. This is Dirty White Belt Radio. My name is Jeff Shaw. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next Sunday.